0: Well, we are continuing our summer sermon series. We've entitled this Growing a Culture of Discipleship. That is our theme for this year. And so that is why we have focused as pastors uh, on this topic throughout the summer. Our desire as leaders here is that our church would be known and experience discipleship. And we've, deci- we've defined discipleship as personally valuing and then applying God's word to ourselves, that is key. But then taking that next step, a step that is so often lacking in the Christian life. It's stepping outside of ourselves and intentionally and selflessly devoting ourselves to others for their spiritual growth. So that is how we have defined discipleship, personally loving God's word That's where discipleship begins, and then giving ourselves to one another. That is the discipleship culture we long to see develop and grow here at EBC. And so this morning, as I do continue this series, I want to pick up where Tim left off in the book of Colossians. So join me in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Tim, last week... Look at the goals of discipleship in verses 24 through 29. The goals of discipleship. Now I want to transition from those goals to the first five verses of chapter two and the benefits of discipleship. The benefits of discipleship. Answering the why question. Why devoting ourselves to one another in a discipleship relationship is worth the cost? Why is it worth the cost? Because there are costs involved. This is how Paul ends chapter 1. Verse 29, Paul writes this for this purpose. What purpose, Paul? The purpose of presenting every man complete in Christ discipleship for this purpose. Notice I labor For this purpose here, I work, kapiao, I labor. Strong word, I toil to the point of weariness. That's the word. That word labor speaks of work that leaves someone so fatigued it is as if the person has taken a beating. Carries with it the idea of exhaustion, intense effort, Paul says, I labor, to which he then adds striving. It's a word picture of an athlete who painfully pursues his prize. Translate it here as struggle, or fight, or contend. One commentator wrote this the words together, labor and strive, describe the tremendous energy of Paul's apostolic ministry. He strained every physical and moral sinew to present every man complete in Christ. That's his goal. That's his life, his energy. Another commentator wrote this. Such striving implied earnest prayers, careful planning, letter writing, giving direction, even from prison to the missionary program, bidding defiance to Satan, official gospel proclamation whenever possible, personal witness bearing and living an exemplary Christian life, even in the midst of great pressure and affliction. He's laboring, he's striving. I think we can add Paul's own words to this. 2 Corinthians 11, he experiences labors, imprisonments, Beaten times without number, often in danger of death. We have it so easy, don't we? We can complain so quickly. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure of, on me of concern for all the churches. I think that's laboring and striving. Oh, but Paul, you don't know my life. You don't know my life here. This is why, look at verse 29, Colossians 1. This is why Paul adds here, concludes, that he's laboring and striving. He's weary, but he's working. He's accomplishing his discipleship mission. Notice, according to God's power. That's why he adds this. Paul recognized the weightiness of his task. He saw the impossibility of his calling. He's engaging in a divine work that could only be fulfilled with divine power. Power, verse 29, which mightily works within me. The power to endure Paul through all of that, but also the power to change the hearts of those Paul served, to open up their blind eyes, to sanctify their fallen heart. Now, notice who Paul is laboring and striving, contending for. Look at verse 24. I do my share on behalf of Christ's body, his body, which is the church. Paul gave himself away for the church. Paul loved the church. Verse 27, Paul struggled for those whom God willed to make known what is the riches of of the glory of this mystery. Paul gives himself away for those whom God gave a new heart. And then verse 28, Paul devoted himself to those who are in Christ. Paul's wearying himself, he's toiling, he's exhausting himself for fellow believers, for their spiritual growth, for their maturing in the faith, for their... Verse 28, for their completeness in Christ. And yet for many, this is not how the Christian life is lived, is it? For many, the Christian life is not a life of struggle alongside one another or contending for one another's faithfulness or toiling to the point of exhaustion for the person sitting next to you. For many, the Christian life is a lonely endeavor. It's an individual task. But that's an idea foreign, completely foreign to the New Testament. It's not how the Christian life works. It's not what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't save us to be alone. This is now the third time you've heard this quote from Mark Dever throughout this year. Christianity is not for the rugged individual, the self-made man who needs no one else. It's a religion for disciples of Christ who lead others to do the same. Christianity is for people traveling down the narrow path that leads to life. You must be loved and you must love. We love others best by helping them to follow Jesus down the pathway of life. That's how the gospel works. That's what the gospel does. The gospel saves us to be united together. And if there's anything that verses 24 through 29 in chapter one here of Colossians does, it makes clear, makes clear that no one, no one can become complete, mature in Christ apart from the people of Christ. I'll repeat it. No one can become complete in Christ apart from the people of Christ. And Paul understood this he knew how much Christians need one another because he knew how much he needed other believers. When we think of Paul, we often think of that bold, strong apostle. He didn't need anyone, he traveled, he's by himself. Well, look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, notice what we see here. Verse 7. Notice the name, verse 7. Paul mentions Tychicus. In verse nine, he mentions Onesimus. Verse 10, he mentions Aristarchus. Verse 11, Justice. 12, Epaphras. 14, Luke. You have Archippus in verse 17. That's Paul's team. Paul didn't go out this alone. That's his team of gospel workers. They're in the shadow for sure. But he knew how much he needed others. And not only that, Paul knows how much he needs these Colossians. Look at chapter four, verse two. Here's the command now. Devote yourselves to prayer. Verse three, praying at the same time for us. Paul needed the company of fellow believers and Paul needed the prayers of fellow believers. and thus Paul knew that if this was true for him then this was true for every believer which is why he could not leave his brothers and sisters in Christ alone he needed them and he knew that he they needed him so back to chapter 2 here's the application We cannot be so concerned, so consumed about our own spiritual growth that we neglect the spiritual growth of others. Our fellow believers need us to contend for them and we need them to contend for us. Which brings us to verse one of chapter two. Paul continues this weary, toil, contending language for the sake of others. In verse one, he writes this, for I want you to know how great a struggle. Same root word as striving in verse 29. How great a struggle, the agony. I want you to know this. He's getting personal here, intense even. I want you to know, no doubt, Paul wanted the Colossians to know everything that he wrote In the letter, that's why he wrote it. When it comes to completeness in Christ, when it comes to the maturity of our faith, when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to contending for one another's faithfulness, Paul wants to stress this point like none other. Listen up, Colossian Church. Listen up, EBC. Pay careful attention here. I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. Know my goal for your life. Know my earnestness for you. Know why I have agonized in prayer for you. Know why I have those sleepless nights. Know why I have spiritually fought for you and and wrestled for you. It's the words used. Know why I am enduring prison, writing this letter for you. You can put it in discipleship language, know why I am intentionally and selflessly devoting myself to you for your spiritual growth. And at this point, we encounter an application that is so needed for us to hear. Because what is the greatest explanation? for why we do not give ourselves to the spiritual growth of others. Why we do not contend for one another's faith. What is our default counter argument to the call to make disciples? What's our out? It's either I don't have the time to enter into a discipleship relationship. don't have the time. Or I don't have the energy to give myself to others. Or both, I don't have the time and the energy. Well, I think we have a how much more kind of application. Again, verse one. I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have, watch now, who have not personally seen my face. This is the discipling heart of Paul. He was concerned for the spiritual maturity of those he hadn't even met. He had never met these Colossian Christians. He had never visited this church. And yet verse 29 and verse 1, he struggles for them. He labors for them. He fights and contends for their maturity. So here's the application at this point. How much more? How much more should we then struggle and labor and agonize and devote ourselves to the spiritual growth of those we actually know and those we see daily, weekly, those sitting in this room, our friends, family. They need us and we need them. And so what follows then in verses two through five are the reasons, the reasons Paul exerted all of this energy for the maturity of his fellow believers. Why Paul deemed the expended energy was worth the cost. Put it into our 2022 theme, why growing a culture of discipleship, though it will mean reorganizing areas of our life, that is true, And though it will mean saying no to some things in order to say yes to other things and even other people, that is true. By growing a culture of discipleship despite the effort necessary is indeed worth the cost. It's worth the effort, it's worth the energy. These are the benefits. These are the benefits of a discipleship culture. Benefits that not only affect us personally, but then corporately, together, as a church body. There are five of them. Let's begin with benefit number one. Benefit number one. When we are devoted to a culture of discipleship, we will become a people fortified in heart. We will become a people fortified in heart. Look at verse two. I'm laboring, Paul says, so that their hearts may be encouraged. Better translation, that their hearts may be strengthened or steeled, secured, unmoved, unshakable. Remember the situation here. There's false teachers abounding in this valley. They're attempting to draw the Colossians and other believers away from Christ and his gospel. This is the Lycus Valley. Even Laodicea is is being affected by these teachers. Look back at chapter one. Notice what Paul prayed for this church. He prayed that they would attain all steadfastness, fortification in heart. Notice the warning in chapter one, verse 23. The warning that they must continue in the faith, Firmly established and steadfast, fortified. Look at chapter two, verse eight. Another warning. See to it that no one takes you captive. It's prisoner of war language. Look down to verse 18, 2:18. "Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. It's a warning be steadfast, immovable. Paul was concerned that these Colossian believers might be led astray into error, into sin, that their attachment, their bond, their faithfulness to Christ would be weakened. There's one thing that caused Paul's heart to fear. There's one thing. 2 Corinthians 11. I am afraid, Paul writes, I am afraid that your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Or 2 Corinthians 12, for I am afraid that perhaps when I come there will be strife, jealousy, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I am afraid that when I come, I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented. Paul was afraid of sin, not shipwrecks. Paul was afraid of confessing believers, abandoning their faith. Amazing, in chapter four, verse 14, we read this. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also who? Demas. Demas, later on, would abandon the faith. This is why Paul struggled for these Colossian believers. His desire, back to the verse, his desire was for them to remain fortified in their hearts. The mission control center of their life Paul never took the Colossians' saving faith for granted. He knew that the battle of faith always rages. He knew the pull of the world is strong. He knew that the false teachers of the area were cunning. And thus Paul stood guard for them. It's so key. He stood guard for them. And so too must we. We must not take the spiritual growth of our fellow believers for granted. Rather, we must stand guard for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must devote ourselves to them for their spiritual growth, their faithfulness. That's personal discipleship. Just using other words. So that's the first benefit of toiling on behalf of one another, It's the discipleship culture brings about a fortified heart that can stand firm in the faith. The benefit is worth the cost. Number two. Number two, benefit number two. When discipleship permeates a church, we will be a people unified in love. Unified in love. When you boil it all down, Churches that lack love are selfish churches, right? Selfish churches. Individualistic churches. Proud churches. Churches where there's no love, are churches filled with people who do not think they need one another. I'm good. But that's not the Colossian church. Continue verse two. Paul's next phrase, the Colossian church had been knit together in love. Knit together in love. Knit together, it's a medical term. Refers to the fusing of broken bones. They've been bonded, stitched together. It's a picture of unity, togetherness. Here's the unity amongst the people of God under the lordship of Christ. Christ. There was a humbleness about this church, a care for one another. So turn to chapter four and verse 12. Notice an example of this humility, this care, this love. You find Epaphras, verse 12, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He sends you his greetings, always laboring, Earnestly, it's the same word Paul used of himself in chapter one. Striving, laboring. He's always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Paphras says, agonizing over them. For I testify for him that he has a deep, he has a deep concern for you. the life of a loving church. We contend for one another's faithfulness. We labor earnestly for fellow believers' maturity. Underline that phrase, deep concern for you. We must have a deep concern for one another's completeness in Christ. A loving church is a discipling church. What does Paul say back in chapter thirteen of Second Corinthians? Not or First Corinthians, knowledge without love is what? Knowledge without love is what? Nothing. Nothing. Personal, individualistic, self-centered knowledge that does not overflow in a love and a concern and a care for others that knowledge is worth nothing. It puffs up. That's all it does, it puffs up. In fact, it hardens the heart. It disunifies rather than unifying. But when a church labors for one another and invests in one another, this unifying love develops, how could it not develop? There's the togetherness of concern that grows, a love for others, that love for others then superseding our own personal agendas. And we can think of the results of this, what that kind of discipling, caring, loving church looks like. It's a church that overlooks petty wrongs, it's the church that extends forgiveness to others quickly. That's the church that does not bite and devour one another We're too busy discipling one another and caring for one another. This is the church that's able to fulfill its evangelistic calling according to Jesus because remember what he says in John 13, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for who? Not for the world, a love for one another. Our evangelistic presence in our community begins when we love one another in this room. And we love one another most when we contend and labor for one another's spiritual growth. 1 John 3. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. Praise our Savior. Here's the application John makes. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, for one another. That's being knit together in love. Look at chapter three, Colossians 3, 14. Paul puts this now in the form of a command. Put on love... Put on, wear it like a garment, be clothed in it, make it your culture. Why? Because it is the perfect bond of unity, togetherness. And how did this love show itself for this church? This love shows itself through Paul's struggle for these Colossians daily. Epaphras' deep concern for his fellow believers. And again, just think what a church like this looks like, a church where discipleship is indeed part of that culture. When brothers or sisters in Christ wander away from the fellowship of the body, a discipling church does not let them go. We go and bring them back. Why? Because we're devoted to them. One part of the body hurts, we all hurt. We're willing to fight for their faith, their faithfulness. Where a culture of discipleship exists, when we see a bitter spirit developing in someone, we can come alongside them and call them to peace, reconciliation. Why? For one, because we know them and we love them and we're invested in them. But two, maybe even more significant, it's because they know that we love them. They know we love them. We've developed that discipleship bond with them. We've showed them our love and our care. So again, the answer to that question, yes, the benefits of discipling others is indeed worth the cost. The discipling church is a church unified in love. Number three, benefit number three. When discipleship permeates a church, we will find a people assured in Christ. Assured in Christ. Continue verse two, chapter two, verse two. Next phrase and attaining to all the wealth, all the spiritual riches that comes from the full assurance of understanding. It's a reference to the mature, stable Christian. The believer who is certain as to the person of Jesus Christ. Grounded and unmoved in the gospel, confident that God is working out his redemptive plan to perfection. Perfection. The believer that has full assurance. But what you will find is that there are many believers who are like James chapter 1. They're like the surf of the sea, they're driven and tossed by the wind. They're filled with doubt, not assurance. They doubt the power of God to perform his will. They depend on the circumstances of life to bring them joy. These are believers who distrust God's decisions, distrust God's plans. They often question him. They're unsure that his decisions are for their greatest good. And the correlation is this, not always, uh, but more often than not, those are the believers who are alone in their faith. There's no rudder. They're alone in their faith. But that need not be the case. We can experience, verse 2, all the wealth. All the wealth, all the riches, all the joys of our salvation. We can be fully assured in our understanding of God and his greatness. That is possible. But notice the connection that Paul is making here. This full assurance would only come through his efforts His toils. This is why he's laboring. So this is how God works. He uses us in the lives of others. And so too, again, chapter four, the Colossians must pray for Paul if he will have this full assurance as well. It's a two-way street. This full assurance, this steadfastness of faith is one of the benefits of being a part of a discipleship relationship. It's the benefit of being able to talk about your doubts. You're able to talk about those. Someone who cares for you, loves you. You're able to open up yourself to fellow believers about your fears. It's in those discipleship relationships that we have that space to ask those hard questions and probe hard issues. It's in those relationships where personal application can be made. Blind spots can be revealed, change. That's where change happens. It's in those discipleship relationships that we are able to come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ and undergird them. It's Galatians chapter six. Bear one another's burdens. We all need that, don't we? We need one another. We're able to bring that brother or sister back to the scriptures. When there's doubt, we're able to remind them that God is both faithful and good. This is why Paul labored for his fellow believers. This is why we too need to devote ourselves to one another because a discipling church is a church assured, fully assured in Christ. Benefit number four. Number four, when discipleship permeates a church, you will find a people growing in holiness, growing in holiness, Notice the end of verse two, resulting, all of this resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. True knowledge here, it's a reference not to surface knowledge or merely head knowledge, but to a knowledge that burrows down deep into the fabric of our being. Knowledge that changes us and transforms us, that's true knowledge true knowledge of Christ himself, knowledge of Jesus that changes us into the image of Jesus. Again, this is what a culture of discipleship does. It brings us in a very personal way, finish verse three, to Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As we grow in our understanding of Jesus We come to realize the riches of his glory, the treasures of his gospel. And our minds cannot help but change. We begin to think like Christ and then we begin to live like Christ. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. Wisdom is the application of truth. And thus, wisdom from below, that's how we used to live, wisdom from below becomes wisdom from above. And James says that that kind of wisdom shows itself in Christ like living. That kind of wisdom shows itself in things that are first pure and then peaceable and gentle and reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. That's a Christ like life, that's holiness. That's the result of coming to a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ Himself. This should be our goal. But now notice the connection that Paul makes. This growth in holiness, this growth in Christ-likeness, does not happen alone in a vacuum. Look back to chapter one. Verse 9. Paul says, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with knowledge. Same word. With knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom. Same word, wisdom. Our Christlikeness necessitates others praying for us and others Christlikeness necessitates us praying for them. The two go hand in hand. Christlikeness does not happen in a vacuum. Again, the connection to chapter two, verse one. likeness necessitates us struggling on one another's behalf. Again, the emphasis here that Paul is making is clear. God uses one another to grow us, transform us into the image of Christ. We need one another to become people growing in holiness. We need that discipleship relationship. We need that intentional selfless giving of ourselves away. Which leads then to a fifth final benefit here of a discipling church. Benefit number five, when discipleship permeates a church, you will find a people who are sound in doctrine. Sound in doctrine. Notice verse four, I say this, they say this so that no one, not even the most subtle false teacher, no one will delude you, will lead you astray. Again, that's Paul's fear. No one will delude you with persuasive arguments. That's what the false teachers are trying to do. And just like what we saw in verse two, we're seeing Paul's ever-present concern for these believers, again, that fear That the church would be swept away into error. That the church would be rendered useless for the sake of Christ by embracing false doctrines. That's exactly, actually, it's exactly what did happen to the church of Laodicea. Look at verse one of chapter two. I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, it's about 10 miles away in this valley. What happened to them 30 years later Here's what we read in Revelation 3, that the church of Laodicea is neither cold nor hot, and that church is spit out of Christ's mouth. The same threat of doctrinal perversion confronts us today. Persuasive arguments coming from everywhere we turn, from the secular culture to even the quote-unquote Christian communities. But the mature Christian, the discipled believer, the others-oriented believer, he or she is not duped. He or she can see a wolf in sheep's clothing a mile away. They're able to discern error from truth, which is exactly what these Colossians were able to do. Look at verse five. For even though I am absent in body, Nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing. Here's the joy Paul has, even from prison. Rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith. Church is being attacked, every side. Tempted, every side. And yet they remain sound in doctrine, good discipline, taxes, There's an orderly array of a band of soldiers. It's wartime language. There's no breaks, no breaches in their ranks. They're stable, they're steadfast. The stability of your faith, that's corporate strength. They're hand in hand together, they're locked arms. When one's weak, they're strengthened. Holding the line theologically and doctrinally, unmoved by the opinions of the world. Why, at least in part, it's not the only reason, but at least in part, why were they able to do this? Connected to verse 2 because Paul struggled for them. Paul's struggling for them. Connected to verse 29, Paul's laboring for them, striving for them. Counted the benefits worth the cost, and thus he was giving himself away according to his power which mightily works within him. Leads us to a necessary question question of application. Like Paul and like Epaphras, are you willing? Are you willing? to do the same for those within this room? Seriously consider that. Are you willing to do the same for those within this room? Are you willing to struggle and labor for one another's spiritual growth? It is true that it will take effort and it is true it will take time. It will force us to change priorities in life. I I get that. But Colossians 2 reminds us that the benefits are worth the cost. The benefits are worth the cost because a discipling church is a church that is fortified in heart and unified in love and assured in Christ and growing in holiness and sound in doctrine. Do you wanna be a part of that kind of church? We can if we give ourselves away for one another. Father, you have given us a call and a task. And yet it requires your spirit to give, a, give us a heart of selflessness. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for being so selfed, self-focused. Forgive us for that. Forgive us, Lord, for not caring about the spiritual growth of others in this room. Forgive us, Lord, for taking for granted the Christian life of our church family. Give us that selfless heart that intentionally gives ourselves away that humble heart that recognize we need one another and they need us. Oh, well, may we be a humble church body. May discipleship on small scales, larger scales, formal, informal, may that be taking place, not because it's a program, but because it's driven by a love for you and a love for one another. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.